Welcome to another episode of Colubrid and Colubroid Radio. Zach here as always, and uh, Matt's with me as well. How's it going, Matt? Frustrating yeah. as hell, but we're in it and, and we're, we're running. And running. So, to give our <laughs> listeners a little bit of background, we recorded an episode last Tuesday with Chris Montross of Dark Horse Perps, and uh, there was a little echo. We hoped and prayed that the echo wasn't being recorded. The mother effing echo was recorded. So we have a two and a half hour episode with Chris that basically went to pod podcast purgatory. So we're going to have to have Chris on again. Uh, and then we just spent the better part of 40 minutes trying to get the record button to work. But the record button's working. We don't have an echo. So we may actually be able to, you might be listening to this podcast sometime this week. So um, please no, we're not ditching you. It's just technology is not exactly being our friend. So, uh, yeah. So tonight we have on, and I'm probably going to butcher his last name, Kurt Schwatzel? Schwatzel. Schwatzel. Almost. Uh, who's a longtime Colubrid keeper, well-known in New England, um, former president of the New England Her- Herpetological Society, correct? Yeah. yeah, several times. Several times over. So we're going to be talking to Kurt about colubrids, obviously, naturalistic keeping. we got a couple target taxa, which we're looking forward to discussing tonight. But before we get to that, it's just kind of our tradition to kind of go over uh, what all went down. So this past weekend was Daytona, and neither Matt nor I and obviously Kurt were there. So um, if you had a good time at Daytona, put something up on the Instagram page or the, the Facebook page. But Maybe going next year. I don't know. We'll see. It's unfortunate that it always hits literally the weekend before my semester starts. So uh, there's that. Other than that, um, breeding highlights. Uh, I had my first clutch ever of gopher snakes, Sonoran gophers. I thought they were Lajita locality. Um, and then out popped one that was this crazy pattern. And then Chris Painshab. Badlands Herp, he's in the chat group I'm in, and I shot a picture to the group. I was like, what the hell is this? And then he informed me that I produced a Forks gopher snake. So apparently my gophers have Forks genes in them, which is pretty cool. Uh, but we produced a bunch of bull snakes up at the school this year. So um big pit fan here. They were pretty cool. They're chilling in the garage. I have another half clutch of false water cobras set to hatch in the next 10 days. Uh, and other than that, my season's coming down to a, a slow trickle. Um, but I, I looked at the calendar and was like, son of a bitch, it's time to start feeding things, rats and mice, because we're heading into brumation soon. So I'm um, going to be picking up feeding on some of the animals and trying to make sure that the females that drop this year are kind of as close to being at, at weight as possible. So that's that for the herbs. And, of course, the inevitable is happening tomorrow as we record this. Tomorrow the semester starts. So... 15 weeks of happiness and joy. The students always talk about how rough they have it, but the profs have it just as rough. But there's absolutely worse jobs in the world. This is the first semester, though, that I only have a I – a, I'm teaching herpetology to grad students, and I'm teaching herpetology to undergrads, and that's it. So I can't bitch that much. I mean, this is kind of like a dream semester. So that's it for me. What's up with you, Matt? Oh, man. 
Well, this is kind of the end of the winding down of egg season. Uh, pulled out some mandarin eggs mm-hmm. this past week. And today was actually extremely exciting because I pulled out a clutch of red-lined or red-striped snakes from Africa, which is amazing, and also received a phone call yesterday from a good friend that I I had sold the pair to, man, it's got to be like three or four years ago, one of the first pairs that I ever produced. He ended up um, pursuing them as his collection, and... He ended up following my directions and ended up producing his first clutch, oh, cool. too, as well. So so extremely excited to see the succession of that species in herpetological collections. And also extremely excited to just see, you know, continuous reproduction in captivity. So No, that, that's got to feel good. And, and we wouldn't have the, I mean, let's stop being humble. Those snakes wouldn't be here if Matt didn't start working with them and, and work do the hard work to figure out how to establish them and get them to breed so that's got to be cool cool to, good feeling to know somebody else is yeah doing it too a lot of veterinarian care mm-hmm. and also uh life yeah. and death a trial and error yeah <laughs> yeah a lot that's of trial the truth. And error. so anything else before we just jump into this thing and pray the technology gods nothing happens in the next hour and a half <laughs> i got my fingers crossed what about you kurt well, here's hoping. I mean, thank God I got my son here to make sure that I'm squared away, like I said. You know, otherwise, I don't know what, what would happen. <laughs> what would happen? There? Yeah, no. All right. Uh, I mean, these are his headphones. Yeah. So other than that, I'd be talking through a microphone. God knows how that would work. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So let's just jump into it then. So, Kurt, tell us a little bit about your background with reptiles. Has this been a lifelong obsession? Did it hit you late in life, early in life? Don't know a time when there wasn't there. What's your story on that? Well, I, I just turned 56. I've been doing this for what? Since I was nine years old after catching my first garter snake. I started, you know, the way people started back in the 70s. They went out and they caught things. There wasn't any reptile trade to speak of that I had access to. You had people in zoos and stuff like that. And I, later on in the 80s, I was able to get my hands on some cool animals because of the people I knew in zoos. But in the beginning, it was all catching things and keeping things and find out what worked and what didn't. And, you know, you lift up the board and you find the garter snake and, you know, you don't just collect the garter snake. You pay attention to what else is under there because the other stuff is probably what the garter snake's eating. Mm-hmm. So you grab some of that too. And sure enough, over time it tends to disappear, you know. And I did the 10-gallon tank thing in the garage for years. And and uh, after a while I, I figured out the society existed. The New England Herb Society has been in existence for I think we just celebrated our 50th anniversary. Cool. Um, I, I'm no longer affiliated with the society, but we get that society gives away more money in grants and um, um, what do they call it? Pro, like promotions, things like that, um, donations than any other society in America. We give out tens of thousands of dollars every single year. When I was president, and I'm sure they're still doing the same thing now. When I'm not, and uh, I can't I can't speak enough about that society. And uh, so years later, you know, like I said, I got involved with some zoo people. I got some cool animals that way. I got to work with people who had cool animals. Um, we worked with, I worked with Australian pythons for a while, the ones that really came from Australia, mm-hmm. uh, through friends of mine that were in zoos and friends of mine that knew friends that were in zoos. And so that was kind of neat. And it was an exposure that you wouldn't have gotten unless you actually did work for a zoo, which I didn't. But And from there, I moved on to... 
the nineties, I moved on to colubrids. I bred boas for years. Um, I recently, the last six years, I worked with Argentine boas, bred those three times, cool. and they those animals didn't belong to me. They belonged to a friend of mine. That was the first time I'd ever worked with Argentines, and they were great to work with. And uh, my my friend now has that those animals. And moving back along, uh, Matt and I had a bunch of conversations. I ended up with some of his animals, which um, became uh, very interesting to keep. And I, I purchased a pair of uh, conspics from him, these Japanese forest rat snakes, which are cool. And they're still doing well, still have them. And uh, we got into the, he gave me the pair of the patternless Japanese rats. He, he calls them striped, I call them patternless. Um, we managed to reproduce those um, weirdly, but it happened. And uh, we produced Russians from his beautiful yellow and black female. And what else? Um, uh, I'm dealing mostly with Europeans right now, Europeans and Asians. So I've got Escalapian snakes. We've got, we went halves and a pair of uh, Bulgarian rats we were able to pick up. I'd like to see if we can grab some more of those because those are really nice animals. Cool. The older and bigger they get, the nicer they look. So that'll be a project for maybe probably year after next. I want to get them nice and big, so. But yeah, other than that, that's that's where we're at. Well, Kurt, you're forgetting about the melanistic longissimus too. Oh, I did forget about those. Yeah, another uh, uh, joint project with Matt. Uh, we did pick up those. He gave me his female to work with, and that female's doing well. And then we picked up a pair, one of which is, I don't know whether it's head or whether it's normal. I guess we'll find that out when the time comes. But, and then the. Uh, I think it was the male that was melanistic. Yeah, mm-hmm. and we have those. And, yeah, I think that's it. And then I have the kukri snakes, um, which I haven't produced in a few years because I started having problems with those. Um, I kept animals. I started. Uh, I had a customer call me and say his animals dropped dead after four months, and I thought that was unusual. So I, I stopped selling for a while, and I kept the animals from two clutches that I had. And sure enough, over time, 80% of those animals dropped dead between four and six months, and I couldn't figure out why that happened, and I still don't have an answer for it. So the only solution I was able to come up with to, um, you know, kind of stop the bleeding is to just stop selling the animals and just keep them until I can figure it out. It might be an inbreeding thing because the Tioman Island kukris are only found from Tioman Island, uh, supposedly, and that became a wildlife preserve in 1974. So everything in European and German, German and Swiss collections, those are all animals descended presumably from that island before it closed off export. So there's probably a good deal of inbreeding. Um, that, that's my only guess right now, and uh, I'm trying to get hold of uh, any other wild kukri I can, preferably a purple one, and um, just try and outbreed a little bit and see if I can get the, uh, the line to stabilize before I... Start selling to people again. So, but there are, I, there's still plenty of people out there who have adult kukris and they're producing from what I sold them. So, some one of my customers actually made a page about them and it it has all my customers on it. <laughs> there you go. Cool. Well, and I, I think that's actually a, a cool little like segment off of this too is just like the ethics and responsibility of a captive reptile keeper is just you know when you actually see something like that to actually kind of take back and look at things and try to associate what might actually be happening and and try to 
look at it as a solution and try to coordinate that in terms of conversation. Yeah, I think, you know, those of us, you know, all three of us have real jobs here. I don't have to worry about filling the propane tank in the double wide. <laughs> so snake money right. really doesn't mean a hell of a lot to me. I mean, it, it, my reputation means more than that. The health of the animals and where they go after they leave me means more than that to me. So, and, you know, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir yeah. here, obviously, but there's tons of people that need to know that. Yes, they need. No, I agree. Um, so, Kurt, you know, kind of going into that, I mean, you and I, we, we had conversations even, too, when I was out there in Massachusetts, and I remember you had the house snakes, you had the email house snakes and stuff oh, like yeah, that. Oh, yeah, I worked with them what for really? years. <laughs> and then you finally got rid of them. And then I got back but, into them again, and then I got rid of them again. <laughs> I got in and out of them twice. Oh, After breeding man. hundreds. So why colubrids, though? I mean, in everything Space, you mostly. kept, I, yeah. yeah. The, the idea of, and I did the, you know, for the longest time I, I did the rack thing and the newspaper thing and the, the Tupperware, Cool Whip container, water bowl thing. And after a while, I just, my eye, my eyes just started to glaze over. And I said, there's got to be, a, you know, and I had access to some European keepers at the time. And, and, you know, they were keeping far fewer animals than I was, but they were keeping them so much better. So I, I kind of scrapped the entire way I was keeping animals, and I slowly and gradually worked my way into just keeping a select few animals. I'm, I'm at the stage right now where if I want to get to work with another species, I have to figure out which species I want to get rid of to bring that species in. Because I'm not really adding to the collection. I'm adding to what – I'm adding to the collection in the way I want to keep it, not because – not to just acquire an animal. So a lot of it – you know, again, the European way, you know, isn't – the, the American way where we make tons of money and, you know, stuff like that. And we mass produce animals. It, it's, it's a much more enjoyable way of keeping animals. And, uh, you know, I'd rather keep the 35 animals I have than 350, you know. Can you expand a little bit on what yeah. you mean by the European way? Just in case there's somebody. Well, yeah, na- naturalistic stuff. They, they try to do it as naturalistic as possible. Um, I'm not real good at naturalistic setups. My girlfriend's a lot better than I am at it. And she's helped me a lot at it. Um, because but I, she's I don't Canadian. know what I'm doing. I just I know what I want. I just don't know how to get there. So I asked because she's always buying plants, and she the whole house is like you know I'm afraid I'm going to be the apartment. I'm afraid I'm going to be strangled in my sleep by some plant. So it's obvious that she knows what she's doing, and she set up a few of my enclosures here. In fact, the Bulgarian um, enclosures she set up, and uh, you know it works great. You know, topsoil, some cypress on top. Put your pothos in. Um, add your lighting, um, UVB or uh, preferably UVB and a plant light, and you're good to go. And the beauty of Europeans is you don't have to worry about heat. You don't have to use stuff like FlexWatt or, I mean, you can use a spot if you want. Um, but my animals aren't up and awake in winter, so it doesn't matter. You know, it's not something, it's not like I have to superheat, you know, a, a large enclosure in wintertime for an animal that's not going to be up and moving. It's going to be in hibernation. So, Hey, but, but Kurt, real quick, man. I'm pretty sure your girlfriend's Canadian, so is that the Canadian way or the American way? <laughs> well, it's, a, it, it's definitely a way of keeping plants healthy, I'll tell you that. You know, and, and by the same token, animals healthy. So if one does well, the other does well. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. You know. The American way being, you know, like I said, everybody looks at things through the, through the lens of money. And, um, you know, I have a job for that. And when I stop doing the job, money will still come to me. I'll get a pension and things like that. So snake money was never something I, I'd always sought to latch onto. 
You know, I, I usually buy guns with it or, you know, something. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> or I put it back into the, enclos- the enclosures. I, I do other things with it. There's always stuff that needs replacing. You know, stuff burns out. Lights get too humid and blow out on you. and So there's always now, a, there's always a way to spend the money. <laughs> now, that's something, I mean, Kurt, Zach, I mean, all of us have always talked about. I mean, it's really just a means of just kind of continuing the hobby. It's, it's kind of a fun way to actually think about the hobby because it's a hobby that actually supports itself. It's almost like self-sustaining and those attributes. But, you know, we have to be careful to uh, morally and ethically to make sure that we're not cutting corners and make sure that we're, you know, providing the best for these animals. And that's something, you know, Kurt, early on, you and I, we've had many conversations. I mean, I love your keeping style because of, you know, for instance, I mean, the way you keep Russian rats. I mean, almost like walk-in enclosures. It, it, it like is a walk-in, but I'm lucky to have that because that actually was my bulkhead. And uh, yeah. it, it, when you're dealing with an animal like a Russian rat snake, you have to do nothing to that enclosure to keep them in it except put a couple of spots in it in a UVB light and you're done. And just make sure the door locks. That's it. And I, so Kurt, I decided to plant it and everything and make it look nicer, but... I mean, you don't need to super insulate it or anything like that. That's a hibernation room for them as well. That goes down to 40 degrees in winter. I just keep them right in there. So, Kurt, for the people that aren't familiar with yourself, would you mind just, like, elaborating a little bit, maybe even, like, pinpointing your um, Facebook, Instagram page now so this way, like, if someone's, like, listening actively while this actually plays, they can actually just quickly, like, search to it right now. Um, but also talk about the respective means of how you have that enclosure set up. Uh, sure. Okay. We'll do the, the Facebook and the Instagram thing once. You want me to like s- spell out the links? No, no, no. I, I think just casual because we'll include it in the description okay. later. Uh, it's just uh, my – I used to have a, a – I think uh, Facebook took it down. It was my um, South Shore Herpetological Society page, but that's – that doesn't belong to me anymore. Facebook wouldn't let me reaccess it. So it's just my personal page now that I have, which is just my name, Kurt Schatzel, K-U-R-T-S-C-H-A-T-Z-L. And then my Instagram is uh, pigeon under slash toad, T-O-E-D under slash orange under slash peel, P-E-E-L. Pigeon toad orange peel. <laughs> It's a reference to a bar in a Clint Eastwood movie from the 70s. Okay, cool. <laughs> in case you were wondering. I'm sure a lot of people are, but now they're not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay, cool. And what were we going on to next? I'm sorry. Oh, just like how you have the enclosure set up in terms of maybe dimensions, uh, temperature, setup. What have you? Because I, I think this is actually very important in terms of te- talking about maybe even keeping snakes communally, yeah. too, as well. No, oh, that's a big, um, you know, a big taboo thing if you go onto Facebook groups, which is why I don't yeah. go on Facebook groups. <laughs> it's also why I never talk about my boa breeding, yeah. because my boa breeding was done mostly communally. Um, you know, again... Communal keeping is a European way of doing things. Um, it can be done. It doesn't have to end in disaster. It, it can end in disaster depending on what type of keeper you are and how attentive you are to f- things like feeding and separating for breeding and things like that. I know for a fact that if I do not take the loser male Russian rat snake out of that walk-in 
when he is done being beaten by the male, that male will try and kill him. The, the victor male will try and kill him. I've seen it happen. So I have to remove him. That's part of being an attentive keeper when you keep communally. Um, and uh, I, I don't do. I usually only do it with breeding animals. Everybody keeps communally. If you're breeding animals, you keep them communally. There's no other way to do it. Yeah. I mean, there is, but there's no other way for humans to do it. <laughs> you have to put your animals together. Yeah. Um, as far as enclosures go, I, I'm still a fan of the 40 breeder. Um, it's versatile. Um, you can make it work. I mean, it depends on what you're keeping. If you're keeping a, a high humidity animal, um, you might have problems keeping humidity in a cage like that because of the, the way that it's designed. Maybe a rack's a better deal. My kukris are in racks because they, they just they need that humidity. If they don't have it, they have all kinds of problems with um, just keeping their body weight up. Um, but, I mean, snakes like Europeans and things like that, it, it, I mean, Escalapian snakes can get to be seven feet long. Um, my male and female are about four feet each. So, And you're talking about an animal that it, they use wide, huge amounts of area in Europe. And, and they, they come from all over Europe, thanks to the Romans, but... They they appreciate a bigger cage. You see better behaviors in a bigger cage. Um, bigger cages are more aesthetically pleasing to people. You know, people usually aren't expecting uh, to see zoo-quality stuff in a private collection, but that's pretty much how the Europeans have always done it. I mean, they've done it with everything. They've done it with tropical fish. They started the whole keeping thing 100 years before we ever knew, you know, to even keep a snake in captivity. They, they were doing it long before we were. So and and that stuff is uh, I think it's important for a lot of animals. I think you see different behaviors. All of my adults are on UVB except for the kukris, um, and at some point I'll get them uh, on UVB. Um, I think I don't think there's an animal that doesn't benefit from it in some way, and I don't think it has to be on eight hours a day. Um, it does generate heat in the fixtures that I use. You could probably get away with one hour, or two hours a day uh, for many species. They really. They don't snakes don't expose themselves for very long periods of time, but they will expose themselves long enough to get the benefits from uh, a simulation of sunlight for sure. So I, I try to fix the cages with UVB light, and I've done I've this pretty innovative ways I've done it. I've done it with snap-on Velcro. I've done it mm-hmm. with um, silicone. Uh, I do it so that if there's a problem, I can remove things and put things back in with a minimum of effort because I don't have a whole lot of time. <laughs> so. Um, one of my favorite things to use is the uh, Scotch uh, Velcro plastic strips I use that too. snap together. Mm-hmm. It's not the furry stuff. It's the plastic stuff. And uh, I buy that by the 50-foot roll, and it's absolutely fantastic. And there's a thousand different things you can use it for. Um, yeah, I had to- And I put lights. I put three-foot lights up with that in cages. And then when they break or if they, they die from humidity, I pull them down, snap a new one in place. It's perfect. Do the, I do the exact same thing. The yeah. under... Uh, counter not under counter but under shelf kitchen leds yeah yeah yep. and i was trying to mount them yep. with the damn screws and the pvcs i have and then yeah but you can't see what yeah. you're doing <laughs> oh no you want to talk about rage like you, you i was so then, mad then you one, did you have a screw one cage to another yeah, one uh-huh did that too <laughs> it's funny because the stuff that he brought us to the same part of event and then i was like wait a minute we use these things to put up pictures why don't i go buy those yeah. Right. And they work yep. fed and you can use you don't have to use much of it at all. It works fantastic. Yeah. And if they give you any trouble sticking to the top of the cage, just a little dab of silicone yeah. and put it up there and Boom. come back in six hours and put it back yeah. up. And when they break, they're easy to replace. Uh, yeah, they're fantastic. They're in all my visions, they're in all my boa files. Uh 
All my adult snakes are kept on that stuff. Like I said, except the kukris. Very cool. And I, I think it's I think it's a huge huge benefit. So Kurt, like talking about that too, like the European style. What made you transition towards that style? I mean, you talked about the paper aspect of it. Was it social media? Is that what kind no, of? No, social media had nothing to do with it. Um, social media has okay. too much negative on it for me to be influenced by it. It was mostly just. Um, <laughs> it was mostly just being in groups that, um, and this was way before Facebook. Um, there were um, news groups and things. And people would send me photos, and I'm like, wow, that's fantastic. But it, it took a while, and I did a lot of experimenting. Um, there was a book written by Philippe Duvajoli, um, The Art of Keeping Snakes, which um, I don't have it in my hands right now. I wish I did. But I, yeah, I do. <laughs> Now, can I do this? Is this something I can do? Can I show this book? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So this is the book. Yep. Is it coming up backwards? That's yeah, good. Yeah, sorry. Um, but this is hard to get now, I think. But if you can get it, get it. This is the one where he talks, he initially talks about bioactive setups. Um, there, I do have a few bioactive setups here with bugs in them and stuff like that, and they work really well. Uh, but this book doesn't deal with bugs at all. It deals with substrate things like clay and sand and topsoil and how you layer it and how you put um, filtering in the bottom and add water to it and mix it. And when you do that, you, it becomes bioactive through microorganisms. And it has like a, when you pick it up in your hands, it has a silky feeling to it. And that book, this is the book that started, um, that changed me on, on keeping the way I was keeping. This was copyright 2004. Um, so I was thinking about it, but then this book, came out and I read it and I'm like, yeah, this is what I want to do. So that's what I started doing. And then from there, I kind of went and did what worked better for me in, in my snake room and things like that. But it's still the same idea, the same principles that uh, that he outlines in that book. He's one of my personal heroes. He really knows his stuff. Yeah, no, Philippe's a great guy. Um, I was invited in 2020 to go speak in California for a conference. <laughs> Obviously, that didn't happen. Um, but I mean, having received multiple animals from Philippe, I mean, he is a genuine gentleman that really respects the aspect of captive husbandry. It's hard to find a European that doesn't. It really is. Right. I mean, it really is true. You can find plenty of Americans who don't, but you can, it's hard to find a European. (laughs) But yeah, it, less animals, better enclosures. I mean, that's kind of been my motto. It's, it's always been. Whenever I think about getting another animal, I always think, how am I going to keep this animal? What's the plan? That's the first thing that runs through my head if I'm thinking about working with an animal. Um, and there's stuff that don't doesn't do well for me. I don't do well with lizards, and I don't do well with South American snakes at all. So I don't keep them. I got away from them. And I, I realized that Europeans and Asian colubrids were my thing. And, you know, the occasional, I have a few uh, educational animals here um, that are North American, but that's it. I haven't done any educating in a while, but because of COVID and all that, so. <clears throat> well, that I mean, that's how you and I we even talked about multiple things too. You know, I was like, "Hey, Kurt, I think this might actually do better out there by you, based on barometric pressure, temperature changes, that, winter." That has a lot to do with and, it. And and you know, we worked it out, and you said, "Hey, I, I want to make sure I have cages available. I want to make sure I can keep them properly." which a lot of people don't do. And I I think that's actually something 
that I really wanted to talk about in this episode, and I know Zach wanted to talk about, because there's actually a, a bigger part of this in terms of captive husbandry, in terms of moral and ethically keeping animals responsibly. And, I mean, you, you kind of nailed it already, Kurt, in terms of talking about, you know, cage style, UVB, um, and, and just the proper offering in terms of what will actually succeed in your collection. Yeah, there's, there's like I said, there's certain things. I remember buying a pair of um, Centicolas from Bill Hughes, and he gave them to me at a really good price, and I brought them out here, and they just, they would eat. But they didn't thrive. They didn't grow. One eventually passed away. I had them for about a year, maybe a little longer. I ended up selling the um, the remaining. I think it was the female that was remaining to uh, the Zirkles. And from there, it went somewhere else. But they, because of the humidity we have here and because of the high temps and the fact that it was really hard. We have hot summers here. This We've had 95 degrees for the past month and a half here. It's been hot. And it's really hard to control, you know, to keep temperatures down when you're dealing with an animal that's out in 60-degree weather basking, like the Centicolas are. And uh, they just didn't do well. And then from there I realized, yeah, this, this thing's, I'm going to have to watch what I keep from now on. You know, because, it, you know, and uh, from there I found out what does well. So I think the collection right now is pretty well balanced. I mean, like, if you offered to give me your tricolor hognose snakes, I, I'm going to tell you no. You know, something <laughs> like that to work with, I'd be like, no, I don't want to work with those because I had them before and they didn't work well for me. So that was another animal well, that never thrived here. So, well, well, Zach's over there, like pounding his head on the screen, thinking, "How the hell does Matt get these things yeah. feeding?" Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, yeah. I saw that photo with the they're right out of the egg, and they were mm-hmm. eating. They haven't even shed yet. Well, the best part is the picture. If you actually zoom in, the one shedding while it's eating. Yeah, and then yeah. I made thirty of them one year, and not one of the little bastards decided to eat. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, it has everything to do with uh, the microclimates of your house. I don't think people take into it. I think people overgeneralize too often that just a snake is a snake is a snake is a snake. And there's a reason why there's 2,500 plus species of snake. Um, they we, There's generalists that can live anywhere, like corn snake. And then there's things like the tricolor hogs, which do great at one place and then do okay at another and then crash you know, at a third place. I'm the same way. I, ironically, the thing that does not do well in my house are Asian rat snakes, with the exceptions of the Japanese rat snakes. I had the blue beauties and Taiwan beauties and Dion's and uh, a couple of the Oreo cryptophis, um, uh, and, and they just didn't do well here. But I, I learned. I was talking to Matt right before we recorded this. I put out some high uh some gobies again that measured humidity and they've been out for the entire year and I've been tracking my humidity and I'm damn near the Amazon basin down here in this office right now with the ambient humidity from outside. And then in the dead of winter, I'm like Antarctica, like the humidity is at 20%. So mm-hmm. if you're a, it's about the same yeah, here. If you're a snake that needs kind of an even keel, somewhat humid environment, you're, you're done for in this house and, and if, had I not done that, I wouldn't have come to that realization. But that also explains why the snakes that I had were were inevitably crashing because half the year they were doing great and half the, the other half of the year they were just kind of there. So now I have animals in here that I've, I've kind of steered towards North American stuff that's from the southeast, even though I'm in the northern part of West Virginia that's near Pennsylvania, and everything's doing great. So. I, th- I think that's an important, and that's where the art of snake keeping. Philippe actually talks about that stuff in that book. I've read that book a couple of times. 
Yep. So, yeah, it's an excellent yep. book. So can I ask a question in regards to the naturalistic keeping since we'll kind of stay on this theme for just a little bit longer? Um, you obviously yep. were keeping in the racks, and then you moved to, to the naturalistic setups. And oftentimes you get pushback from people. Uh, I think people kind of on both sides of this argument, the rack side and the naturalistic side, they both have their own axes to grind, and then they grind their axes and embed them in each other rather than actually have, like, a lucid conversation. But as someone who just literally did this for you, you weren't influenced from anybody, you did it because Kurt wanted to do it, uh, did you did you notice just how, like, how did being a keeper change, like, your weekly routine or, or the enjoyment or whatever from – the rack style to the naturalistic style. Well, it, it changes your entire outlook on, on keeping. I mean, it, when you look, uh, whenever I when I was a little kid and I saw like a, uh, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when boas used to come in on ships in Charlestown Harbor, mm-hmm. and the sailors would keep a pillowcase around, and if they found one, they'd save them. Huh? And me and my father would go in and grab those. That's how old I am. <laughs> I'm old enough to remember that. Sometimes there would be stuff in there you didn't want to take yeah. home too. But that's, a lot of times that's how we got animals. They came in on bunches of bananas. And they changed the shipping of bananas in the late 70s, uh, and early 80s, all that changed. But anyways, it, whenever I've looked at an animal, I've always looked, that animal transported me to wherever that animal was from. When I looked at a boa constrictor, I thought of South American jungles. When I looked at a, a, a Russian rat snake, I thought of you know cold rivers in northern mm-hmm. China and things like that. So that's about the first thing that leapt into my mind when I saw an animal. And I... After a while, I began to realize, how can I try and recreate this to at least a, a small little piece of it here in my house? And, the Europe, you know, being in touch with Europeans helped with that. And once you do that, you begin to see your animal behaving in entirely different ways. Now, I wouldn't, I'm not the guy that knocks racks. Racks mm-hmm. have their purpose. My cuckoo snakes would be dead if it wasn't for racks. Oh, yeah. If I decided to put them in a 10-gallon tank, they'd be dead. Mm-hmm. You can't hold the humidity. You'd have to pour water in there every six hours. I don't have time for that. It's just too crazy. So they do have that purpose for some snakes. And eventually, you know, if I get a few more on hand, I will be experimenting with different ways of keeping them aside from just the general rack way that I'm keeping them right now. But it, it changes the animal's outlook on being kept, and it changes your outlook as being a keeper. <clears throat> yep. I just, I got more enjoyment out of it. Yep. It was more interesting to, I mean, it's more work. You know, people think, oh, it's not work, just bioactive. <laughs> no, 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 that's no, not no. how it works. You, you, it's hard to have enough bugs in an enclosure to clean up everything. Yeah. And I don't like the way snake skins look after they've been attacked by the pill bugs <laughs> because they separate. So you got to get those out of there. Otherwise, they just create a big mess for you. So, I mean, I mean, can you get away with it? Possibly. If you have enough growing plants. Growing plants are hard to keep in an enclosure with a large adult snake. They crush them. Even pothos. <laughs> They'll do a number on them. They'll lay right on top of that plant until it's dead as a doornail. And there's really not much you can do about it. You can put stuff in, plant, in planters and hang them, but then you're, you're losing the appeal. Now your place looks like an apartment instead of a snake enclosure, <laughs> so it looks different. So you, you got to – there's a give and take with everything. That's In a case like that, you go to some artificials. Mm-hmm. So, But, yeah, it changed my whole outlook on keeping. Um, and uh, if I ever move, and I probably will when I retire, I'm going to have a hard time replicating what I have here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can I can see a – Two or three moving trucks just to take what I have here away with me, and that's just reptile stuff. Good golly! And that's if, that's if I'd want to take the caging with me. So, 
Yeah, you know, it, it's really funny when you, like, start to put all of that in perspective. Because um, I've experimented with, like, rhino rat snakes, brucinum, too, as well, and, and, and setting them up in naturalistic cages. And I I don't think a lot of people realize how much work it actually takes to actually keep up with that. Um, especially when you get into the aspect of bacteria with substrate, um, bacteria with water, but also... There's a lot of bacteria that actually builds up on plants, too, as well, that you have to take into account, especially because, you know, that animal might be soaking in water that might have defecation inside of it, and they're going to be moving around inside of their enclosure and spreading that around, and something you have to take into account for. Yeah, freshwater is something you got to pay close attention to if you're keeping a naturalistic setup. So if you're keeping any setup, the animals, you know, they can go without food. It's not a big deal, but freshwater is critical. Um, they can drink out of dirty water in the wild. They pro- I'm sure they do it time and time again, but it's not dirty water that they've been defecating in for the last three weeks. So, All right. So you have this enclosure with the Russians in it, and, and we thought we haven't really dove into Russian rat snakes yet on the podcast, and they're one of my personal favorites. Um, they're kept fantastic snakes. Uh, so just talk a They're the best pet snake in the world. There you go. They really are. I kind of I share that sentiment actually. Um, <clears throat> so there's nothing bad about them. <laughs> <laughs> so talk a little bit then about that. Give the dimensions of that enclosure because I don't think we did that yet. And then all right, so it's a bulk, it's a regular bulkhead of a house. Oh, bulkhead. Okay. Um, yeah, and what I did was I built it up with cinder block to make it a square room instead of you know bulkhead slant, yeah. and they usually have a staircase in them so you can walk into your basement from outside. Um, we uh, when we redid the house, we went to gas. We didn't take we everything got cut up and brought out the back door, so we didn't use the bulkhead at all. And we've never used the bulkhead for anything. So I decided to take it and just put cinder block in the end, put a roof on it with shingles. Uh-huh. And uh, for a while, for many years, I bred boas in there, and it was insulated. I bred boas in there. I bred scrub pythons in there. I bred retics in there. I bred all kinds of animals in that enclosure. For it's been the way it is for. 40 years now, easy. Um, but it had insulation back then. And um, now it doesn't. Now it's just a complete bare concrete enclosure that's been spray-painted green. Mm-hmm. And it has a heater in it that never gets used, uh, an oil-filled heater. The dimensions are about, let's see, it's about six and a half feet tall, about seven feet long, and about five feet wide. Cool. And, uh, yeah, you can walk right into it. It's got a, a door like a door in your house. You turn the knob, you pull it open, um, and it's completely escape-proof for an adult animal. I wouldn't want to put small animals in there, like babies or anything. I wouldn't want to let eggs hatch in there. <laughs> <laughs> that could be bad. Yeah, and it's got a shelf for basking that um, is uh, screwed into place, a piece of uh, one by six, and it's got dead tree limbs. It's got There's nothing alive in there. It's got a topsoil floor. It's got... Natural bugs that come in through cracks from the concrete outside. So it's got a lot of uh, your uh, cleanup crews, mm-hmm. your pill bugs and stuff like that. What the hell do they call them? Um, isopods. Yeah. And uh, it's got a lot of those, and there's tons of those in there. Um, and it's got two spots, three spots on the top that are just um, LED bulbs enclosed in an incandescent bulb face. And then it's got a four-foot strip that goes across the middle. And that's the only heat in it for the entire summer. And it gets, I've seen it as high as 90 degrees in there just from outside heat, even though it's an underground enclosure. 
Um, and it goes down to about 40 degrees in winter. Um, right now it's at about 78 degrees, which they love. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little bit high for them, but they do real well at it. And uh, there's three animals in there right now, a male, two males and a female. And breeding season's over, and they just hang out in their respective places. There's a shelf of cinder blocks against the back wall where they um, they sit in. And there's also a big statue of Buddha on top, which I added a while back. <laughs> I think I sent Matt that photo. <laughs> yeah. I bought it off Amazon. I couldn't resist. <laughs> just give it to an Asian appeal, you know. Mm-hmm. Plus, it's good for my chakra. There you go. Yeah. So. Keeps, you, keeps you level. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah, but I'm lucky to have that. Most houses, you'd need your bulkhead for doing things, you know, heavy work and stuff like that. We don't really need it here since, like I said, we redid the heating system, and that'll be like that for forever and ever. So, and, and then the other enclosures so Kurt, I have, I've, I've, I've transformed 40 breeders into upright enclosures. Um, you can do that with uh, Lexan. You drill holes in it as a lid and then you put hinges on the side and a hasp on the other side oh, cool you can get the hinges from uh, different vendors and glue them right on and it um, if you use like uh, eighth inch or quarter inch Lexan it won't warp on you you just drill your holes careful and you've got a nice little enclosure there not so great for UVB because your top is glass mm-hmm. but um, they, they do still work I mean a little bit gets through not a whole ton but um, it's, a, it's a good you know enclosure to put together in a, in a hurry if you need something to bore you'll, yeah you can even do it for a horizontal cage for a 40 breeder too. But And then I utilize visions. I utilize boa files. Um, I'm not a big fan of visions because when I worked with Venomous, they were, they were problematic. The snakes would hide on ledges and, mm-hmm. you know, there was no lighting in them. And <laughs> You know, you just had to be aware of that, you know, and, and they do the dirt and defecation gets, you really have to clean a vision really well. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the boa files a lot better because there's no nooks and crannies in those. Very cool. Yeah, having worked with Venomous before, that top ledge over the sliding glass that can be a killer, literally. Yeah. Goddamn. Yeah, it was a night. <laughs> yeah, we had a green Western green mamba in one, and it was you know, you didn't never knew where that snake was until it popped its no. head down and looked at you. Yeah, working with black mambas, green mambas. And working with visions, those are the worst cages ever for venomous. All our venomous were in visions because that's what we had. So it was a rescue. Yeah. Oh golly. Yeah. So with the Russians, how long have they lived in that cage or that enclosure? Has it been a while? Let's see. I bought I bought my uh, the stock I'm breeding now. I bought from Jeff Cochran eight years ago, six years ago, eight years ago. They're big snakes. They're around six, seven feet long. Um, they've been in there. Yes, I got rid of the Argentines. The Argentines were bred in there. I got rid of the Argentines. For six years, I used that to breed Argentines. So the animals, the Russians that are in there now, have been in there for th- two years, three years. So when you initially raised them up, what was your strategy? There? They go in racks. Mm-hmm. Yep, we do racks for them when they're being raised up. They grow. Russians, I don't know if Matt has the same experience, but Russians. Once they hit to about 18 inches, that's when the feeding really starts, and they just start, boom! Mm-hmm. They just start slamming food, and they grow, and they grow, and they grow. And it's easy to get them up to a, a size where they can go into the walk-in. Um, but, yeah, everything, hatchlings are always in, in racks just for expedience and cleaning, keeping them clean, keep, keeping your records in order and stuff like that. I don't think there's another way to really do that 
without driving yourself completely crazy. <laughs> there probably is. I mean, you might be, if, if you were my girlfriend, you could probably make a, a naturalistic habitat in a shoebox. <laughs> yeah. I can't do that. Uh-huh. So I, I don't, you know, I mean, I could try, but mm-hmm. I'd just be drive myself crazy with, you know, however many Russian rat snakes that are still at the house. And, and, the, <laughs> and at what, what temps were, were you keeping them at? They're, uh, in the walk-in, they're anywhere from 90 all the way down to 40, sometimes lower than that, because um, they do hibernate in there. Um, in the As babies, they're at about 76 degrees, 77 degrees. They're not heated. I don't heat the racks. Oh, God. I don't heat the racks for the Jap rats either. They just go in. Sure. Uh, my basement stays fairly warm. If it, if it gets cooler, I don't worry about it. Um, the cave dwellers are kept about 75 degrees, 74 they seem to love it. If an animal eats, defecates, moves, um, I'll pay attention to that, and that's the way it's going to be kept. Gotcha. If I see it drinking a lot of water and an inordinate amount of water, I'll just increase humidity because that's probably what it needs. So, so how long does it take to get well, to that 18-inch mark? For a Russian? Mm-hmm. year and a half maybe? Okay. Yeah, I was going to say about a year and a half to two years, give or take. Yeah, um, they're spotty with very, feeding as babies. I mean, yeah. they'll start, but then they'll stop on you. You know, a lot of times, and I tell customers this, I'm like, you know, don't be surprised if this animal starts feeding in September because it they just do that. And if it does that, just, you know, put it someplace where it's about 50 degrees for a month, then wake it up and it should be fine. You know, you want, you're not, I'm not going to hurt the snake. No, you're not going to hurt the snake. The snake's going to be fine. Um, but yeah, it's a uh, year, year and a half. And, I think once they start smelling females as they approach adulthood, that's when the eating really starts to happen too. Because I know my males smell. I know my males and females smell each other. Because Matt's female is kept in a big exoterra, and that um, animal knows when there's males around. And that's the enclosure she's bred in too. Because I need to keep what I do with her separate from what I do with my animals. And uh, and then I have another male that I'm growing up that's in Iraq. Um, uh, really yellow one that I got at a reptile expo for almost nothing. <laughs> nice. That animal is half uh, owned with another friend of mine. But uh, yeah, they, they're spotty at feeding before they hit that 18 to 20 inch mark. And then once they start breeding, they just never stop feeding. Excellent. Um, it, it's, it's almost like a nutrient war with them. They need to get as much food in them as, as they possibly can. And Matt's female will not stop eating. <laughs> if I fed that animal 10 mice, she'd eat 10 mice. She might throw up three of them, mm-hmm. but she, she'd eat them. And, and, you know, feeding an animal as much as it wants to eat isn't necessarily a good thing either because that doesn't happen in the wild. Yeah. So I tend to keep my animals pretty lean. My Russians are pretty pretty whippy. But you can't see any bones or anything, so I'm not worried about it. Well, and that even brings up something, Kurt, you've brought up with me too in terms of uh, hatchlings, you know, respected from two different females. You know, from the eggs that hatch out of the girl that I sent to you to the eggs. That female that is out. unbelievable. Yeah. And his fe- so w- your female so- is only three and a half feet long. That snake is tiny. And that snake puts out eggs that are about <laughs> this big. Fourteen of them. And they hatch out babies that are ten inches long. Now, I've got seven-foot females in my walk-in that put out eggs about a quarter, about 20% less in, in size. And the babies are about eight, eight inches long, seven or eight inches long. They're still as healthy. They look the same, but they're just not as big yeah. as mats are right out of the egg. And mats tend to feed better. My, you know, I've got three of, I've got one animal that won't, hasn't fed at all, which I'm not terribly worried about. 
And then I've got like, what do I have, nine snakes? I think seven of them are feeding all the time, and then the other two. But all Matt's snakes are eating. I mean, all the ones that we, we bred together are eating. They're all just, they'll eat anything you give them. Mm. And I haven't even had and, to play any tricks on them. They just eat. No, and, and that's something like, you know, in the hobby in terms of talking about things, I think that's really something... You know, when you talk about genetics, talk about lineage breeding, I mean, that's what I want, right? I mean, that's, like, I got a phone call today about some corn snakes I had posted, and the guy's like, hey, can I get individual pictures? I'm like, yeah, but wouldn't you want the best feeding animals? And he goes, no, I want colors. I go, all right, but this could be bad for you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't care what it looks like. If it's a species I want, I want the one that's pounding food every time it's offered. Because that, yeah. that's the one that's also not going to drive me bat crap crazy. So, Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah the other the, um, theory I have with Russians, too, I mean, with, especially with Matt's female, you're talking about a small snake that produces big eggs with big babies in them. There's probably an evolutionary reason for that. Maybe that animal is from a very cold part of northern China or something like that, or northern Korea. And it needs to do that because those snakes have to come out of that egg and be able to secure a food that might actually try and run away from them, which means a weanling mouse. So maybe that's an evolutionary strategy. Maybe snakes from the southern part don't have to worry about that so much. Yeah. Maybe that's why so my that bigger is, animals are giving me smaller babies. Yeah, totally. Who knows? Yeah, so that's, that is 100% right on, Kurt. Um, there are different locales of those Russians, and... In terms of talking about Russians and Koreans, there's still a huge debate on whether or not Koreans are actually true mm-hmm. species and whether or not they might actually just be a subspecies of just a know, regional variety. Guy. Yeah. I want to take this just a little bit 90 and talk about Koreans for a second. <laughs> because back when I was an Asi- Asiatic rat snake, I really wanted to get a pair of, of Korean. And uh, I could get albinos. There were albinos yeah. all over the place, but I just wanted normal, wild-type Koreans. And um, I actually I, I, I saw them on Morph Market, and I thought, okay, I'm going to pull the trigger. And a guy sent me the most perfect Russian rat snakes ever. And I, I messaged him and was like, first of all, this is not the picture. This is not the snake that was in the picture. And second, these are Russians. I will, uh, and, and to his credit, he was like... They say babies yeah, or adults? They were like juveniles, but they absolutely okay. had the... Ba- like the, the pictures... Oh, they're black. They're yeah, Russians. When they yeah. got here, they were they were black with bands. I mean, there was... <laughs> yeah, no. So I, I just messaged him. was like, I want my money back. Sending these back to you. And so sure enough, you know, we did. But still to this day, I think I've only seen one. And I know you guys probably know where you can, you can get them, but... I've got a normal female that's really huge, and then uh, Jay sent me her al- her AML male, which I imported. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll probably produce hats maybe next year. Yeah. Um, just because I don't have a choice. So there you go. Uh-huh. <laughs> but uh, I like the, the that area. Yeah. Whatever animals come out of that area, I try to grab them. Mm-hmm. I, I also have a, a pair of those... Um, Spalerosophus atriceps, those diadem snakes yep. that really aren't diadem snakes, mm-hmm. the ones that change colors. Yeah. Those are cool, and those are hard to get. Mm-hmm. So I have a pair of those because they're from kind of the same reason, Pakistan, India region, 
Pakistan-India border. And, of course, you know, when India and Pakistan have been at war for the last 50 years, so it's hard to get exports out of there. So you've got to get what, what um, you can grab. So, but I do have a pair of those. And I just I like the animals that come out of that general region of the world. Very cool. <clears throat> so then feeding strategy, is it once a week, mouse, chicks, not once a week? What's, what's the feeding Chicks once a month for the adults. Um, new babies, if they give me trouble, they get dead brain pinks. I, I, I'm very reluctant to do a live brain pink. I almost never do that because I don't want to do that to an animal. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, if they really give me trouble, I'll do Taliban-style pinks, which is you cut the head off of a dead pinky or a live <laughs> pinky. You can do that too. It's pretty instantaneous stuff. Mm-hmm. It's a little gruesome, but you'd be surprised how often it works. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Sunday is usually the feeding day. It's usually once a week. Gotcha. Um, and I go in cycles. So some animals only get fed like once every two weeks. Uh, the walk-in Russians get fed once every 10 days. Gotcha. Uh, I usually can't produce enough mice to feed everybody at once. So I figure the animals that are getting ready for hibernation, you know, they, they can go without a little bit. But the animals I'm growing up, they get a little bit more. But yeah, it's usually once a week. Gotcha. Okay. And I do have enough chicks for once a month feeding. So. And then for the people, because I... And I breed my own mice. Yeah, I'm picking that vibe mm-hmm. up. So what's it like to breed your own mice? Oh, it's horrific. Yeah. <laughs> it's, the, it's literally the worst part of this hobby. Yeah. There's nothing worse. Yep. No, wh- and um, <laughs> yeah. the, the worst part is, and I, I have a friend of mine who I love dearly. Um, he wants, every once in a while, he'll produce clutches, usually in the springtime of... Uh, um, black milk snakes, and um, he'll he lives right down the street from me, and he'll want a couple of pinks, and like I'll have gotten home from work and I'll be showered and I'm sitting down and he'll you know and I figure oh shit I got to get Jonathan's pinks <laughs> oh I got to walk into that mouse house because it's an outbuilding on my property uh-huh. and if it hasn't been cleaned in a few days it's just it's horrendous you got to have ventilation you got to have AC in the summer which I do you got to have heat in the winter which I do and you get Nothing back on this project except mice. You will never make money on mice. Anybody who says they make money breeding mice is crazy. I don't know how these big places like Rodent Pro don't know how they do it. Uh, all I can think of is they must be sourcing from other places like labs and stuff because there's literally no physical human way to do this on a large scale. I've never – there's just no way. You can't have a, a place big enough to supply a country with frozen rodents. I don't know how they do it. When I was, I've got three hundred mice out in an outbuilding, and it, it kills me every time I go out there. So, having done this commercially before with Pied Piper Rodent, um, which I closed just because of the fact that we couldn't get workers. <laughs> oh, <well>, it's <laughs> shut. Yeah. Um. So, it you you can be profitable. I mean, it doesn't suck doing all that by yourself. <laughs> oh yeah, right. But when you're when you're producing. Three to four thousand mice a week. Oh, it's a lot of work. Um, You're just never out of the building. No, never. And 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 to be very frank, I had never even gotten to full production. <laughs> if I was at full production, I probably would have been producing fifty to seventy-five thousand mice a week. Um, so it is profitable if you do it right. The thing is, of the nature is. A lot of people never will do it right because they lack in terms of feeding the animals properly, cleaning the animals properly, 
packaging the animals properly and making sure that they don't bring in any sort of disease inside of mm. the actual enclosure or like room of which you're actually going right, in. Because there's wild mice that come into these rooms too. Yeah. Well, my so room, but I, I know there yeah, is. So, well, you know, even um, when I did it on a commercial scale, we would actually change all of our clothes before we actually went into the breeder room. We would actually bleach our shoes before we walked into the main room. And we would bleach the actual floors of which we kept the animals in and bleach all of the enclosures and then sterilize it also with peroxide. That was a sta- that's standard cleaning protocol for every time you went in there. Correct. Correct. That's insane. No. So, but <laughs> we, we never had a crash out of the animals. Mm-hmm. Everyone that actually bought mice from us said that they were the best mice they've ever bought in the past. And we fed... Um, a very high protein diet to those animals. And I mean, we were litter sizes were 20 to 25 in a litter per mouse. And at that aspect, it was just unsustainable for the female. So, I mean, every week I'd be working and trying to package up, you know, thousands of pinkies just to help with the females. Mm-hmm. Um, just to lighten it a little. It's profitable, but no one can actually do it at a level of which is sustainable because of no one wants to work. Yeah. No. Yeah. That's, I can't think of anything in the hobby that's more work than, than maintaining a rodent collection. I mean, I did it before I got on this podcast tonight and it, it's an hour to do one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, 15 bins. And I'm also killing and freezing while I'm doing it. So yeah. um, I got bags out there, and I'm taking a few live too because I get my atriceps only want live. So and I'm doing that as well. But it's about an hour; it's about 15 minutes to do one rack of 15 bins in it, 300 mice. They're all big yeah, bins. Yeah. So I, I still keep a um, live collection of um, laboratory mice. I keep um, 2.10, and that sustains a lot. That's what of I do too. Uh, 2.10, 1.5 yeah. ratio. Yep. Yeah, and um, I mean it's a lot of work. And respective of that, I mean, it's primarily for live feeders and, you know, pinkies. It's just handier if you're raising snakes. Oh, 100%. But even that, I mean, it's a lot of work in in terms of cleaning properly, maintaining those animals. um, Because now you've brought in a whole nother level, right? You're raising your rodents. You're trying to make sure they have the diet proper. um, All that goes into your captive animals. Everything you do with that. Right. Good golly. Pain yep. in the ass. Yeah, it sucks, but it's a necessary evil, you know. And I, I again, when you, I, I try to keep it compartmentalized. I'm not going to. My mouse colony is not going to get any bigger. If anything, I'll just kill off a tub. It's not going to get bigger. It's going to get smaller. So that's what I did today. I'm down to 1.5. <laughs> when I go to Canada next year for two weeks, I'm going to cut that colony in half. Because my son's going to be maintaining it, and I don't want him maintaining 300 animals. So. Oh, my golly. <laughs> yeah. no. The only thing I did with rodents, my, my first attempt at grad school, um, I was in a venomous snake lab, and Dr. Grace maintained a, a, a rat colony and a laboratory mouse colony. And I, I don't know anything about ratios. My, I was the grunt that had to clean the bins. And there were two other grad students, and I would rather sling diamondback rattlesnakes all day long <laughs> than deal with that shit. 
And then, it, of course, this is yeah. grad. It's awful, yeah. man. And the best part was, though, it was grad student driven. Because Grace would go into that lab maybe once every three weeks because we were the guys taking care of the animals. And, of course, and, and we would procrastinate and let it get to a level of horribleness that was just. You can't even see. Yeah. No, like when you would move, you'd move the, the like, you'd move the bedding. I remember this, and and then you'd get down to that like weird, crap pine, cement. I don't even know how to explain it. And then the ammonia just whoosh. Uh, ugh. Yeah, no. I keep all my mice yeah. on cypress mulch. I can see that. I don't know how many people do that, but you know it. It it came to you know, and years ago I kept animals, snakes, on pine shavings. Did it all the time. I don't remember ever having an issue, but then I wasn't as astute as I might be now. But the common thing now is to not keep your animals on pine shavings. I still know people who do it. I still know that those people don't have problems doing it. But I started to think, is it really a good thing to be keeping mice on pine shavings? So I stopped doing it, and I said, well, I'm ordering all the cypress mulch. Why not just take a couple bags of this? So that's what I keep them on now. The only thing about keeping mice on cypress is it makes it harder to get them out of the bins. When you grab the tails, because you tend to grab sticks of cypress <laughs> while you're doing it. Gotcha. But and it doesn't do anything for the smell. I don't think it does anything for cleanliness. The cleanest thing I've ever kept mice on were wood pellets for a wood stove. Mm. Absolutely fantastic. Huge problem though. Dust everywhere. Gotcha. And you've got to go in there with goggles and a mask on. Mm-hmm. Um, or a respirator because it's that bad. So I stopped doing that. But literally the best stuff you can keep mice on. There is almost no mess. It just, the more liquid it encounters, the more it compartmentalizes and and compacts it for you. And you just swipe your bleach, dump, wipe, refill. You're good to go. It's really very little mess with it. But the dust was something I couldn't take anymore. My my equipment, my weed whacker wouldn't work anymore. Because I do it in my tool (laughs) shed. And uh, all my equipment got gunked up. I had to... I couldn't work. I'm like, why doesn't this work anymore? It worked last year. I took it apart. It's all full of this dust shit. And, yeah, so we stopped doing that. Now I don't have the dust, but I also have, you know, back to the smell and the mess and the harder cleaning bit, you know, than it used to be. But, oh, well. So back, we keep coming back to Russian rat snakes. I have one more question. Um, when you get eggs, uh, what, what do you do for incubation? Do they, they go in an incubator uh, up on the shelf in the basement? How do you go uh, I've that? done all kinds of things. When I was a kid and I got snake eggs, I would just put them on top of the refrigerator. Did the same thing with snapping turtle eggs. And, you know, I'd check on them and every day probably until I saw noses peeking out. But these days, um, I did. I bought an incubator. Well, I bought um, a wine chest yeah. and made it into an incubator, which I'll probably end up selling for some stupid amount of money because I don't need an incubator. Um <laughs> I come to find out this is not a necessary item. Um, with the summers as hot as they are around here, my basement stays between 76 and 78 degrees. Um, if I want lower temps, I can put the eggs on the floor somewhere at 75 degrees. Um, but I don't need an incubator. Um, I don't think egg substrate is important. I don't think um, there's a lot of gimmicks involved in hatching eggs. I don't think any of it is necessary. Good eggs invariably hatch. So there's a thousand ways you can do it. You can do damp paper towel. You can um, do vermiculite, which which is what I do. I do vermiculite. It's just easy to keep moisture in vermiculite. And I use the, the fine-grade stuff, the stuff mm-hmm. that was hard to get for a few years. 
Um, some people use perlite. I have no familiarity with perlite. I just like vermiculite because I can do what I need to do with vermiculite. I can put eggs in a bin, and then I don't have to look at them again until noses are poking out. I don't have to add anything to them. I put them in little Tupperware things with some ice pick holes in them, and that's it. Uh, but I don't have to keep adding water. I don't have to keep misting. I don't have to keep doing things. I don't have to worry about an incubation temperature. Um, I think last year was the year I stopped using the incubator. Really? <laughs> I just said, the hell with it. I don't need it. It's not necessary. Um, I mean, it gets hot, it gets cold. Good eggs will hatch. So that's pretty much what I do with any eggs that I get or, or will get from whatever animals I'm keeping here. The Koreans, the Bulgarians, the Escalapians. Um, I mean, if there's bad eggs, I'll try and remove them, throw them out because they attract the flies. Um, if there isn't any bad eggs, or even if there is and the bad eggs are too hard to remove, I just let them rot there. Bad eggs don't affect good eggs. Um, I, I, years ago when I was a kid, I made the mistake of throwing away a clutch of Burmese python eggs that I thought were rotten. And the next day I went, got, went to go out and go to work and there were baby Burmese pythons all around my trash barrel. So I didn't do that again. Eggs have to pretty much disappear in the container for me to throw them out. So I don't throw away. I've had bad eggs hatch. Um, yeah, I don't do anything special with eggs. I just make go. sure that the humidity is fairly decent. That's it. It doesn't have to be 80%. Um, it just has to be, if you see a little condensation on the side, you're all set. If the Miculite sticks together in your hand, you know, and no water can be squeezed out, but it still sticks together, then you're good. That's all I do. Perfect. Now, Kurt, off of that, though, the container that you're keeping it in, do you provide any sort of airflow? Yeah, there's or a couple anything? of uh, ice pick holes in it. I don't make real yeah, large holes. Um, some containers, what I did was I used, like, you can buy them at Stop and Shop, the, just the red lid Tupperware food containers you take to lunch, um, depending on the size of the eggs you're getting. Um, I'll take and um, cut out the top and put in a piece of mosquito netting, which gives you better ventilation while at the same time it keeps those tiny little sword flies out that like to get in there. Um, and I'll silicone that around the top for ventilation. I've done that to a few because my Escalapian snake tends to lay some duds and I tend to not remove them because they're stuck to other eggs and those flies will come in. And, you know, there are people who say those flies destroy eggs. I've never seen them destroy a good egg. Maggots don't eat living tissue. They eat dead things. So whatever they're doing to these eggs, these dead eggs, they can, they can continue to do it if they want, if they happen to get in there. But the mosquito netting, the kind that you pull down over your face from the hats, not the mm-hmm. kind that you get in tents, that stuff works really well. You can cut slices cool. of it. You can get it off Amazon. You have to buy the hat, which, which sucks, but then you just cut it off <laughs> what you need. And, yeah, it works great. You just cut a little square out and you silicone it down into the hole. And it keeps the same amount of humidity. I haven't found a problem. I've never had a problem with a husbandry issue where an egg went bad. Never in my life. Um, not that I can remember anyway. I mean, I just read in a book that, you know, give it a certain amount of humidity and it's good to go. And, you know, if it's a good egg, it'll hatch. All right. So, Matt, anything else you want to ask on Russians before we jump to another taxa? I think we jump into the All right. next taxa. So the next one that we wanted to discuss tonight... It's got the same phenotype as a Russian rat snake. Very, very different, though, and that would be mangrove snakes because Kurt kept one hell of a mangrove snake, spread mangrove snakes. People have asked us for an episode on mangrove snakes, so we're kind of doing a, a shift down south into the tropics now. Uh, so tell us a little bit about your history with, with mangrove snakes, if you don't mind. 
And real quick, Kurt, before you jump in about mangroves, I want to talk about wild caught yeah. versus established wild caughts. Yeah. Too. Okay, you want to do that first? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, back when I started, everything was wild caught. Um, incidentally, females tended to lay better eggs when they were wild caught, probably because they're in better physical condition, um, structurally. Maybe not internally, but because of the parasites and things. But parasites can be, you know, parasite loads can be maintained by a wild snake. It happens to wild things all the time because they're not constantly sitting in their parasite load. They can move away from it. But anyways, um, that my entire experience as, as a kid in the 70s and 80s, everything was wild caught. Everything you got. Boas, it didn't matter what it was. Um, established wild caughts are, were, was something you didn't see. You weren't able to get your hands on a lot because people didn't get rid of those animals back when I was, I first started doing this. But you do see them a lot today. And um, one of the two males that I have had was an established wild caught mangrove snake from Bill Hughes, that big male that I had that passed away. That animal belonged to him for a number of years as an adult established wild caught, and he had it for ten or twelve years. I had it for ten or twelve years, so the animal was. Around 30 years old when it passed away, I think. Uh, but it never never showed any interest in breeding with any of the multiple females I managed to get for, from it. Um, trying to think of what else I've had that was established. The only thing I can think of that I've had that was established wild caught in, the, in recent history has been mangrove snakes. And Bill's was one. Uh, Bill's was probably the only one. Um, the females I got were fresh imports, mostly out of Cameron Highlands. They're all in decent shape. Um, they never gave me any trouble with um, feeding or anything like that. They were all Malayans. They weren't Indos. Um, Indos can be problematic with feeding because their diet can consist of so many different things. Their diet can consist of fish. It can consist of shellfish. It can consist of bats, birds, eggs, lizards, other snakes. And mangrove snakes eat almost anything. They'll eat each other. They don't care. Um, so the Indos would give you a problem, but the Malayans never would. Um, aside from uh, just though that species being, um, that particular animal being a established um, wild caught, what, what, were you, uh, what else were you going to get at on that topic? Well, no, I, you know, it, it's interesting Typically, whenever I've been at a show where people take pictures of mangroves holding them, wild cots, they're extremely docile, right? They're holding them. Shipping nothing's shop. happening. And when you get right out of the airport with them. <laughs> and um, so I remember when I was in, in Massachusetts, um, I remember someone actually forfeited an animal to the Herp Society, and I ended up getting it. This is. Kurt, you weren't the president at that point in time, but I got a phone call because I was at uh, UMass, and the animal came to me, and I ended up inheriting a seven-foot mangrove. And what was very interesting at that point in time was, got the animal, it was very placid, the person that came over brought it out, was handling, they're like, oh, this is great, blah, blah, I had that animal for two weeks, treated it for parasites, and that animal became a demon and ended up biting me in the side. And I ended up getting uh, necrotic tissue off the side from where the bite had actually happened. Yeah, I got a bad bite from uh, one once, too. 
and and that's something I think you know off of that that's an aspect of it too that I wanted to bring up is just like the difference between a wild card and established wild card um also that aspect of you know you have to be cautious with some of that stuff too as well especially in the realm which we're living right now and in herp regulation which Kurt I know you're very involved in and very understanding of all that too as well is just you know, it, it's an animal and species we need to respect, especially. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it's never been responsible for fatality that, that can be confirmed, but you, you don't know the particulars of the keeper or the kept. I mean, you don't know what's inside the snake, and you don't know how the person's keeping it either. I mean, the person... I mean, there's all kinds of anecdotal stuff out there about how someone's hognose snake made their hand blow up and stuff. And some of it might be, you know, legitimately due to a reaction to a venom, um, but when you deal, I've dealt with, as you have, real venomous snakes. And the venomous snake to me is 20 minutes. That's the time that you need to set aside to get yourself to a hospital to get treatment before you lose consciousness or before you start to lose tissue, one or the other. To me, that's a venomous snake. That's the way I always looked at it. Um, with, with mangrove snakes, there could be other things going on. There could be the cleanliness of the keeper. Maybe, maybe they're a grubby individual. I was bitten, had a bad reaction. I had my knuckle blow up because that snake sank a fang right into the groove of the center of the knuckle. And it was only on me for three seconds and I pulled it up. But that knuckle blew up like a golf ball. And I got pictures of it somewhere. But, and um, I was, it wasn't normal for about a month, but it's perfectly normal now. But uh, there's, there's things that can happen with bites that, you know, if it hits you in a certain spot, if a certain thing happens, if you let your snake chew on you for 20 minutes for an Instagram moment, yeah. <laughs> These are the things that a lot of people, you know, they don't, nobody's asking the right questions because nobody wants to be investigative. Nobody wants to hurt someone's feelings. But um, if it's venomous and you don't get to a hospital in 20 minutes and you're going to die or lose tissue, that's, that's a venomous snake. That doesn't mean that you should be treating things that can give you a medical problem lightly. You know, and, and like you said, the animal's not behaving normally because it's got a parasite load that it has to deal with. So that's another issue. Once that animal normalizes and it becomes, you know, healthy in captivity, then it reverts back to its old self. You know, we know how parasitized a lot of these Asian animals are, especially ones that eat a ton of fish and amphibians like mangrove snakes tend to. So there's all kinds of things going on with mangrove snakes in addition to the fact that they are venomous. So if you get... Oh, go ahead, Matt. You're up. Oh, I was going to say... You know, with most of the mangrove snakes being available to the general community, what would be your recommendation for establishing those animals in captivity? Well, first time, Other than avoiding them. Yeah, well, everyone wants to keep mangrove snakes until you get a mangrove snake because they, they're really one of the most aggressive species of snakes I've ever kept when they're healthy. They will not stop trying to bite you. They will succeed in biting you. I don't care if you're using hooks. If you're using gloves, you won't be able to get that animal. I mean, again, it depends on how you're keeping them. Mine were kept in five-foot enclosures, um, tall and boreal enclosures, plenty of branches. If you had to get this animal out of a cage for whatever reason, you needed your bare hands to do it, and you needed to be quick about it because they twine around everything. If you had heavy gloves on or a hook, it's not going to happen for you. Or your cage has to be designed in a way that you can take the whole branch out really quickly and set it back in really quickly, um, all while avoiding a bite. So it, what I would do with these animals, the first thing they get is a soak. Um, 
and I would always choose Malaysian imports over Indonesian imports. Um, you want the Melanota um, variety, which are the big, big stocky looking snakes that have the fewest bands, and the bands are usually broken. That's normally how you tell them. It's also where they come from. They usually come from uh, Malaysia, someplace Cameron Highlands, something like that. A lot of your other species come from these plantations as well. But um, they get a soak. Uh, they're going to get quarantined, obviously. The quarantine enclosure is probably going to be dramatically different than the regular enclosure. It's probably going to be an ISIS tub with ventilation and a little bit of UVB on top. Um, I usually will, well, I will um, make square holes in ISIS tubs and cover them with screening, silicone screening over them, and then I'll set a UVB over it. Um, you can do this with a lot of species. It works really well. And that'll be a quarantine enclosure for a mangrove snake, depending on its size. Um, and that animal stays there until I can get a good poop out of it. The poop gets looked at. Um, I, I don't do a lot of testing. I probably should. Um, but I, I know what a good snake defec defecation should look like. If I'm getting that, then we'll see if we keep getting it. If I get one that looks abnormal, then we go down the street to the vet. We have them look at it and see what's going on. I don't uh, do any prophylactic stuff uh, unless I see a need for it. If an animal comes in really rough looking, if it's if I know it has nematodes, things like that, if you can see the bumps and things, um, then, you know, if, if the animal just looks rough, then, yeah, there might be some prophylactic treatment associated with it. I might take it to the vet straight away and have it looked at. Um, but, and that all depends on who you're getting your animals from as well. There's, there's good vendors and not so good vendors, good wholesalers, good wholesalers, not so good wholesalers. Uh, most of the, I've been lucky. Most of the animals I've, been, I've gotten, and I've gotten quite a few, have been in good shape. Um, there's only been a few that went downhill quick on me. Well, and I think that's even something, um, Gert, like bringing up is just, you know, whether or not to preventively treat a wild-caught animal or, you know, do the um, shockwave treatment of just treating off the the initial start, you know. I think you kind of brought that up. I mean, looking at the fecals, seeing how the animal is actually I want I want to see how it looks before I do anything to it. I mean, right. it's you know it's going to have parasites, but if you're, if you're fastidious enough about your quarantine and your cleaning... You can that you can eliminate the parasite load from the animal without medicating it because you're cleaning up what it's defecating right away. It's not reinfecting itself. Right. That's the way I tend to look at it. When I was a kid, that's how we used to look at it because we didn't have much of a choice. Now, just be be good about your cleaning. Get in there and if something poops, if the water dish is filthy, clean it right away. Well, and also you mentioned a, another key point off that conversation was having a veterinarian <laughs> yeah. look at the stuff. Yeah, it, you, you, you got to find one. I mean, you got to find one. You've got to set aside the money for it, and it's not cheap. Um, I mean, you can get vets that you can, you know, I have my, I have a vet that I've worked with for a long time. Now I have several vets I work with, but with COVID and everything, it can be real tough to get an appointment. Um, that's something I'm not used to. I'm used to calling on a Friday and going in on a Saturday and, that's not happening anymore. But luckily, I haven't had any issues that I, I haven't been able to address. So, but yeah, you, you should have a vet if you're, you know, again, if you're going to be keeping animals in the wild cots, you're going to need to, you're going to have to assume that you're going to need a vet at some point. And it's going to not, you know, it may not be a husbandry related issue. It may just be an issue with the animal. It's carrying a parasite load. 
So in terms of getting some of the mangroves going as wild caught, were you feeding live? Were you feeding frozen chicks, other prey items? The, um, the Malaysian melanota I got in, all eight mice and rats, frozen thawed, right off tongs, no problem, right out of the jungle. Uh, the Indonesians, I can remember raiding the bushes in front of my house for wren nests to feed them <laughs> because they sucked. Um, they're prettier because they have more bands, but they're just... You have to, it's impossible to figure out what they were feeding on in the wild. So you have to just get lucky. And I had a lot of those just crash on me. But the the Malaysian melanota, and you know what, you are, what you're what you looking for if you can see it. Those are the ones that do, do the best. They'll, they usually have very few issues with parasites. They have very few issues with feeding. Um, that female that went up, uh, I had a big, big female that I had for many years. I gave it to Kevin up at Nerd in a breeding loan, and um, he can keep it. I'm not too worried about it. If anything happens, he'll call me, you know, if he has babies or eggs or whatever. But that animal can stay there. Um, that was a huge, monstrous female, Melanota. Never gave me a problem with feeding. Never gave me um, any problem. Oh, it had mites. <laughs> it did have mites when I got it. But that was easily fixed. Um that was the only issue I had with that animal. I had that snake for eight years before I loaned it to Kev. He wanted to, he crossed it with his Amel male, but nothing ever happened. They're tough to breed. I've only bred them twice, and it was, it might have been just pure luck both times. Um, I had a rain system in the enclosure, and I think that really helps to get them rained on. And that, I think, triggers the male to pay, the male and female to pay attention to each other. It was a homemade rain system with tubing and a, a pump set in a kitty litter box. But it worked, and, and it had all these holes in the tubing, and it just, it wouldn't spray. It would drip, 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 drip. It's not like your misters you can buy today, which are kind of unnatural. It was just, uh, it just produced this slow, steady dripping all over the cage. That, And the only two times I've gotten them to breathe was when I had that system working properly. Yeah. And I was able to hear them in the other room crashing around in the cage trying to breathe. Um, that's how I knew it was happening. And so I set up an infrared light, and I would go in there and try to film it. Um, I didn't have a cell phone camera on my phone at that time. I don't think they had them. Um, it was back in the 90s, both times when I bred them. And uh, I forget what I used, but I, I filmed some of it. So I find that very interesting, though, Kurt, you know, talking about the rain system. Because um, we've, we've always talked about barometric pressure, triggers. We really haven't on this on any episode talked about just yeah. rain itself and how moisture can actually well, trigger I tried something. to do it with a regular misting system too and they didn't do anything. They just it didn't seem to be the same thing. I don't know whether it's the the physicality of the drops hitting leaves in the enclosure or the drops hitting them. They do weird things mangrove snakes. They'll stick their tails in water dishes and keep them there for hours at a time. And I and you'll see them kind of break out in kind of a sweat when they do it. I've heard there's some Asian uh, pit vipers that do the same thing. I don't know who's documented it, but I've seen it happen a few times. Um, they seem to, there's a thing with water and hydration with them that I think a lot of keepers miss. <clears throat> but I'm not so sure I'm, I've got it completely ironed out myself. <laughs> so what, when they get out of quarantine and they're moving into their more permanent digs, what what's that look like? Size, heat? Humidity, all that chat. Well, adult animals, so um, we're talking about, I, I usually use a spot and a UVB strip. 
I'm, I'm a big fan of the strips you can buy on Amazon. They're, um, they're made by a bunch of people. They're, they don't tend to be the highest quality, but they're not terribly expensive either, so it's okay. They, they have a reflector strip. They're about <clears throat> anywhere from two to four feet long, and you can just lay them on top of the screen cage, mm-hmm. plug them in, and there's your UVB. They don't require high heat. Um, they'll bask under like a 90-degree spot. But if you take the temperature, it's only like 85 degrees with a, um, a temp gun. <clears throat> and uh, that's pretty much all I do for heat. And then it's ambient heat. So they're probably being kept at around 80 degrees ambient heat and then with a spot of around 95. Um, and then when I try to, if I try to breathe them, which I haven't done in years, I will eliminate the spot. And, you know, if I was going to do it again, I'd probably make sure I had that. I'd try to make sure I, I could build a similar rain system for them which I actually did try to do, and I tried to do it with some PVC pipe. But it wasn't the same. I couldn't get the hole small enough. Even with the smallest drill bit, the hole, the water would pour out, mm-hmm. and it wasn't a droplet like I wanted. But when I took the ice pick and stuck it into the aquarium tubing, the air hose tubing, it, it worked perfectly. So that's something i got to think about. It just didn't work the same way, so I never utilized it. And then a little later, I gave that female to Kevin, so... As far as I know, he's had no success with her. <laughs> They're not easy. <clears throat> Bill bred them a few times. So it, what's the substrate like? It, are we worried about humidity with them? Or is that something people worry too much about and it's not overly important? I've done all kinds of stuff with uh, the substrate. Um, they like humidity. <clears throat> but in the cages, I keep them in. The cages don't hold humidity, so you have to spray them a lot. Um, I, I did a... Uh, river rock substrate for years when I had the rain system. When I had the rain system, the bottom of the cage, this, I had a custom-built cage, which is still holding together, made out of melamine. It's 40 years old. <laughs> oh. uh, no, wait, what am I, 56? It's 30 years old. And uh, it's made completely out of melamine. The bottom is egg crate. <clears throat> two layers of egg crate, so it's about that thick in the two panels. Top is screen, and it's got... Um, <clears throat> tree limbs cemented in it. So when it rained, it went through the down through the river rock, which was uh, about fist size, uh-huh. flat rock, into the into a plexiglass pan that was custom made for the cage. It would cool. go right through it. So you could let it rain there for hours. All you had to do was keep your faucet on. And uh, you didn't have to worry about rotting the cage or doing anything like that. But <clears throat> that was the, that was the breeding cage I used for years. Um, and then the other cage has cypress mulch in it, which is just a enclosure for the the female. The male was always kept in the, the other cage. Both cages are the same size. Glass-fronted, screen top, except the uh, female's cage had a wood bottom. And I treated it with a uh, marine epoxy so that you could actually pour a glass of water into it. It would hold water. Pretty cool. <clears throat> without rotting the wood. Expensive, but it worked. Still works to this day. <laughs> Good stuff. So, when you got the eggs and they hatch, how'd you get? 110 days. 110 days. <laughs> you remember what temps? Yeah. We're at 110 days? 70? About 80, 80 degrees. That's yeah. a long incubation time. Yeah, it was a long time. There were four eggs and all four <laughs> hatched. Both times. And Same female. How did you get the little guys to start? Well, there was a guy called, um, what the hell was his first name? Gillingham. Who you guys probably know. Um, he had a serpentarium in California. <clears throat> and he he told me, fill a shoebox with cypress mulch, 
Pour a glass of water in it. Keep it at 85 degrees. Put the babies in it. And offer them a pink mouse a week after. And that's all I did, and they ate. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I guess maybe the babies like to live in leaf litter uh-huh. until they get big enough. But that worked, and I would just drop a live pink on top of the literally this much cypress mulch and this little baby. And it would just, next morning that pink was gone because I'm searching through there, and it's not there. And after a while, it got big enough, and they started biting me. And I'm like, okay, let's move them into a bigger enclosure. So I did that. And then bigger, and then bigger, and... And then I ended up selling them to a wholesaler for, like, nothing because I was young and stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd kill to have any of those snakes back now. So the telltale time to move the snake to a bigger cage is when they start biting. Yeah, well, or- melanota are interesting. <laughs> they come out of the egg, and they're not yellow and black. They're orange and black. When the orange starts to go away, that's when they start getting bigger and bitey. So they, they grow fast. Um, when they when they're feeding, I mean, if you can get them to eat, which I never had an issue, but I had live pinks too. If you're trying with dead pinks or they don't do the tease feeding thing well, that's fine as a as an adult. But babies are very shy. They don't. Um, yeah, I think they were in there for about eight or nine months, and then they they started turning yellow and they started getting more visible on top. So I moved them into bigger um, ventilated tubs. And then from there, we went into, like, the um, customized 40 breeders that I talked about earlier. And then they were big enough to, once they were eating mice, once they eat stuff with skeletal systems, and if it's over, they just start putting on size like crazy. <clears throat> and then I sold them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was back when I was getting adult Russian rat snakes in as imports for 40 bucks a piece. Good golly. Good old days. Mm-hmm. Back That would have that been about 1998, I think. <clears throat> That's when I was just starting, right around then. Now, the only boiga that I've kept, and I, I bred them, um, were the Saina, the green, cat-eyed snakes. Nice. Yeah. Nice. And, and they were a lot of fun. Those are tricky. Yeah. Well, it was really weird. I, I Right literally next to me, I've got a bunch of um, animal plastics cages. I've got four foot long by 15 inches tall by like two feet deep. And... Uh, when I bought them, Animal Plastics would just sell you this random piece of PVC that you could kind of like, for lack of a better way of phrasing it, beat it into submission, and you could break the cage, put the cage, have two two enclosures. And oh, right. I kept the male and the female in two separate enclosures, and I, I raised them up uh, that way. And I noticed that it was uh, it was 2020, um, and that's when we were all stuck in our houses in March and April, and we had a massive thunderstorm rolling through here in mid-April, so the barometric pressure was just bottoming out, and I had just serendipitously misted the living crap out of their cage that day, and the male was doing everything he could to bust through that wall, so I thought, what the hell, I'll just knock the wall down, and so I did, and I came in not 10 minutes after, I didn't even turn the lights off yet, expecting this to be really difficult, and they were already locked. So uh, got my eggs and then got to go to the – you do not put green – you do not put sienna on deli cups with mulch and drop live pinkies on their heads to get them to eat. I can tell you that. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. You were doing probably yeah. mouse, little bits yeah, of mouse tails. They were and... friggin' nightmare. Well, they were such a nightmare that I was yes. like, here, grad student, you can have half these. And Dan, 
Philly, you can have the other half because I just shipped those things out of here. I didn't have time to deal with them. So, but I've seen pictures. They're they're growing now. So that's cool. Yeah, I guess if once you start them and do the pain in the ass work, yeah. after that they, they they do pretty well. Yep, yep. But yeah, it's that's why you know I mean people get money for stuff like that because it's such a pain on the neck to to put to get them going. <laughs> no one wants to put in the work. <laughs> yeah. All righty. So. I know I wouldn't do it. Anything else on the mangrove, like words of wisdom you'd give people who are considering these this species? Just be prepared for how they act. I mean, a lot of people, you know, they, again, the Internet is full of pictures of people handling these snakes. And people think that that's the norm. I mean, can it happen? Sure. I mean, the mail I got from Bill was pretty placid. And he, all throughout his whole life, he was a good little snake. But you, you don't want to just do that. No. <laughs> you know, I mean, you, know your window with your animal. I mean, and know, know its behaviors. If they start flattening that neck out vertically, they start holding their tongue out, put them right back in the cage, you know. I mean, the cages I had my animals in, I had to take them out by hand. I had no choice. And I like to do it as gently as possible because that's the way I, when I worked with venomous, real venomous, you don't just jam a hook in there. You don't piss animals off that way. You try and finesse them. You try and get a snake out, a rattlesnake out, without it using its rattle, and put it back in the same way. <clears throat> so the more gently you can do this, the better off it's going to be for you and the animal. But you, you don't want to take forever either. And if that animal doesn't want to come out, then clean it tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's better to not aggravate it. It's like working with birds. You know, always end, begin and end on a, a happy note. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot to be. A lot of people just aren't prepared for how aggressive they are. Yeah, no, that's, that's a aggressive. very key note. Yeah. You know, um, and, and that's something I wanted to talk about. I mean, just in terms of the relative interest in Bowiga, you know, going forward in the hobby is just you, you have to be prepared. And really, those animals need more training than just your normal colubrid. People just aren't it's used just to seeing them how they really are. They're used to seeing people handle them in photographs. They're not used to seeing a video of one of those things backing you up across a room. And they'll they'll do that. I mean, a big one can do that. A big one just won't hesitate. It will just come right after you. They they don't care if they get mad enough. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, it it, that that kind and that kind of preparation. You're not gonna even even dangerously venomous snakes don't act like that. Yeah, you know, no. Cobras, Western Green Mamba. I worked with mon- I worked with everything but a black mamba and a king cobra. It was the only two species I haven't worked with, and they they're just snakes. They just want to get out. Even the Western Green Mamba just wants to get out. But when he wanted to get out, he wanted to go up, which was a problem if you're using the hook. But they don't want to come after you and kill you. Mangrove snakes want to do that. <laughs> they want to, and they want to bite you in the face um, if they get angry enough. And it has nothing to do with feeding or anything like that. You know, it has to do with, you know, you, you have a very small window. Here's your window. You can mess with me. If you see that window, you're going to get bit, and it's going to be without warning. So, And not that they're life-threatening, but still, we don't know everything there is to know about them. You don't want to get bit. Again, like Matt said, you don't know what's going on around these days with, with things that can hurt you and make you sick. You know, things that could potentially change your life forever. May not kill you. You know, who knows? <laughs> Yeah. No, I mean, that that's just a, a bigger part of this picture. And I think it's something, you know, it, 
to our general public, our listeners, it's just about being a responsible keeper and just not overthinking things. Because, I mean, in this podcast, I think this was really cool because we talked about two different species of yellow and black animals, right? You've got the extremely placid animal and then also the animal that's wanting to kill you. Two different. And both sides of the spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Which is, is something, you know, when Zach and I were talking earlier, I was like, I think this is this would be cool to talk about two different spectrums, Bowiga literally and is, a Laffe. Yeah, yeah, there's not a more placid animal than a Russian rat snake. There really isn't. Even fresh wild caughts, they just they're just nice, predictable animals. Um, I mean, I've seen some babies rattle their tails. Matt's female rattles its tail every now and then <laughs> at me. She can be a pain in the neck, but she's not. She's not a great. You pick her up and she's fine, you know. And I don't. I'm not one of these persons who sits on my couch and. Handles animals. I don't have time for that. I don't think any of us do. Um, I don't think the animals want that from us. But, I mean, it's no coincidence that many of my customers for Russian rat snakes have been women. And I think it's because of the nature of the Russian rat snake itself. You know, it's just a really cool pet snake. And plus, women are smarter than that. Yeah, that's the real reason. (laughs) So, So, Kurt, you know, as we kind of like get towards the end of this recording, one of the things I've always asked people is, and and this is something I, I personally, from our conversations too, I I think there's a lot of side wings that we could take this, but you know, future goals within the hobby, your collection, how your collection is evolving and necessarily like, what do you think about the hobby going forward in the future? I think the hobby's got a lot of problems. <laughs> I think that, you know, I hate to use this comparison, but there's a lot of comparisons with guns here. Um, most people don't like them. Most, pe- most people don't like snakes. Most people don't like guns. Most people don't understand either. And they especially don't understand people who have or keep them. And it doesn't matter if it's venomous. It doesn't matter if it's harmless. People don't care. They just care that a person is keeping a snake. That's all they need to know. They don't need to know if it's dangerous or not. They just think that that's the weirdest thing they've ever heard. Now, you can change people's minds through education, but you can't get to everybody. As we, you know, social media tells us repeatedly. So, uh, yeah, I, uh, I don't have a good feeling. And politicians <clears throat> have a habit of doing what they want to do. Uh, and, and they don't tend to listen to factual information. Unless they make a mistake and it's pointed out to them, like what USARC did just recently with, uh, um, I forget what the name of the ruling was. They slipped something into a, a bill that was going to restrict, um, oh, the Lacey Act stuff. They managed to eliminate that through a, a, a mis- I believe, I haven't been able to read about it, but I inferred it from a post that it was through a mistake that they made in writing the, the uh, bill proposal itself. But I may be wrong on that. Uh, and you, uh, people at USARC managed to point that out, and that's how it got removed from that bill. Um, but, I mean, USARC's only one guy, basically, and he can't be everywhere and know everything, even though he's doing the very best he can, and what he's doing is admirable. Uh, there's a lot of people doing the wrong thing. There's a lot of people who don't want to want to stick their heads in the sand, and there's a lot of people that don't want to shine a light on themselves, lest they be viewed as you know, doing something illegal or pointed out as doing something illegal. And uh, it, it's unfortunate that the, you know, what, 30% of people who are actually keeping these animals and doing it right are the ones 
uh, who are holding the weight of the other 70%. <clears throat> See, I don't have uh, a good feeling about the hobby. <laughs> I think a lot of the informational networks that we're seeing right now are going to disappear and that the people who know the stuff are going to stop talking. I think that's what's going to happen in the future. If they want to keep their animals, they're going to just go underground, delete their Facebook, delete their IG, and just go with, be happily ever after somewhere with their little piece of nature. <clears throat> just my two cents. So I have a question. Because um, I, I like that view. Um, I hate it. Well, I mean, I don't like I'm, that I'm, view. Let me give it that. I'm a deadly pragmatist. But I, so. but I, I am a pragmatist too. Pragmatist too. Um, how has it changed in the past, like ten years? Like, do you think social media? Social media. Yeah, okay. Social media ruined everything. It it, it showed. Well, social media is again comparisons of guns. Bad things happen with firearms. Bad things happen with snakes. And these are the things that get showcased, not the good things. That's basically it. And this happens in news media. It happens on social media. <clears throat> because bad things get more views, more likes, more clicks, more news coverage than good things do. It's just human nature. So if there's a thousand good things and ten bad things, the ten bad things are getting the front page. That's, the way it, that's just the way it happens to work. Is there any way to fight that? Or is it, there is, but there aren't enough of us. There you go. <laughs> yeah, there absolutely is. No, so it, it's it's interesting, and I, I don't know if we're supposed to take this take, and I hope it don't irritate you, Matt. But there's a part of part of me that when I get onto social media and I've started to see, you know, I keep seeing the same things over and over and over again, and I just feel like. That 30%, I think that's the perfect statistic, too, by the way. Um, I was feeling around for it, and yeah. I figured 20 is too 20, low, 40 is too high. 30, 40. There's a lot of lurkers out there that don't, that are doing this right, but, you know, they're not the people that are, are, are taking up most of the bandwidth when it comes to what a Herford of even if they keep Even if they're keeping illegally, they might still be doing it right. But they won't do anything <laughs> towards legislation and things because they know they're keeping illegally, even though their collections are absolutely mint. So that that's a problem. So, so is it, in your opinion, worth calling people out? Or is it they're going to do what they're going to do? So, you know, the pragmatist approach, it is what it depends is. depends on who the person is. I mean, if it's a – I'm not going to mention any names, but if it's a famous person, a person who's got a big yeah. Instagram following, a big social media following, and you call them out – there's an old saying, bad publicity is still publicity. Yeah. So in a case like that, don't share that shit. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't care if it's a, a python with mouth right. I don't care if it's a python that weighs 9,000 pounds. I don't care if it's a tub with a monitor lizard. I don't care. Don't share it. Because that just generates into whatever it is and however it is that these folks are making money off that image. Or the post or whatever it is. Yeah. 100%. Um, Kurt and I have shared this view for many years um, because... Giving advice is one thing, you know. Yeah. But sharing a photo that of something, it's just, like I said, it's doing more good for the person 
who's doing the bad thing than it is to showcase the bad thing, which yeah. is what you don't want. Yeah. And the hard part about this is at that point in time, and, and this is very true in our society and also in the hobby, is it's no longer about the animals. Mm-hmm. At that point in time, it becomes about the money. And because that's your living. a lot of people, correct. And a lot of people are making money off of YouTube, social media. For instance, Zach and I and the whole NPR network, we do this completely for fun to try to present good, positive information to all of our encompassing viewers and try to present the hobby in a positive way. And that is the future and what we want to actually see in our community. Yep. Totally in agreement. So share our stuff. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Uh, And and we'll give a plug to the the Herpetoculture Network too, because they, they've got, they've got the, Hundred percent. They're totally in the. Their heads yeah. in the right game as well. So, all right. Nope. Yeah. That's just something you bringing this up today. And today was the day where I was like, saw something and was just like, I, I just feel the need to say something. I was like, I don't know, if it's worth it or not. And then I didn't say something, and it's just been eating at me all day. And I thought, is there a way to do it diplomatically? Is it going to be used? Like you said, is it going to be used as publicity? Um. Well, I mean, no, like, but. Commenting on one of those posts is not necessarily generating, or maybe it is. I don't it just know. depends I don't know on the view. Like I saw, uh, there's yeah. a guy on Instagram, and um, I'm just flipping through my feed trying to relax. And he, I thought at first, like he's hand over hand holding a. Um, my my brain went to Nerodia because there's no way you would be doing that with a crotalus with a rattlesnake. Yeah. Well, that's how you and I yeah. would think. But then I thought, no, 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 no. That is a freaking rattlesnake. And he's out yeah. in the middle of nowhere, Arizona. And if, if he gets tagged by that thing and, you know, dies, we're done. <clears throat> and here he is, got 25,000 views in the past hour. And I'm just thinking, like, this is why everybody thinks we're crazy. Um, you're not doing anything good for this percentage that wants to do good and is doing outreach programs for kids and trying to teach people about snakes and making people so they don't want to kill every snake they see. And then you've got this guy who's literally saying the message was, yeah, these animals won't hurt you, which is there's something to that message, but the way you're giving the message is beyond irresponsible. It's not even remotely. Close and, and that's to not okay. even <laughs> so. right. And that's not even taken into consideration. The amount of kids exactly that, um, <laughs> might go out and replicate that kind of behavior and wind up in an emergency yeah, there was a, with a $400,000 medical bill. Right. And and that's a big part of this, I think, is... It, and, Kurt, at some point in time, Zach and I, we, we've talked about this. We really want to do, like, a moral, ethical aspect of keeping reptiles oh, boy. in the hobby. <laughs> and, I, and, and I think it would be very cool to do a roundtable discussion of select few people different views in terms of conversation but i mean the reality of it is is the youth itself is so entertained by phones it's not on your phone computer you know and unfortunately if we're not providing positive reinforcement you know like on instagram my instagram and i i hate to like pinpoint mine but i always try to reinforce the positive nature of trying to actually provide, you know, resources, try to actually showcase a lot of that. But unfortunately, that's not the case in 
across the realm. And that's something I think is our our community itself needs to reconsider and reevaluate and try to think about, you know, are we looking at this for profit? Because if we are looking at this 100% for profit, guess what? This could disappear yeah. tomorrow because we're not looking at this in a positive nature to actually reinforce the ideals that we were raised with, like Philippe de Vogio, right? Reinforcing back the book you pulled out. I mean, it, there's a lot of things of which we could actually lose real quickly just because we're not being um, mature enough to actually act as mentors for the future of our hobby. Yeah. A lot of the people doing this stuff on IG are not fit to be mentors, you know, for right. the reasons we've just outlined. That they've been real lucky. <laughs> These are not... These are not responsible, no. you know, people. I mean, I mean, my IG is just snakes. That's it. That's all I do is post snakes on it. That's all it's for. My Facebook, I'll, I'll do anything I want with that. But, I mean, quality content is important, but there needs to be a lot more people doing it. Correct. And it, it, you don't even have to, you know... Like you, like you said, an ethical roundtable, something like ethical moral roundtable. That would be great. And, you, and people could do that without even having to talk about their collections or, or themselves personally if they wanted to. You know, if you're a good keeper and, you know, you're not, like I said, you're not relying on your next clutch of ball pythons to fill the propane tank on the double wide, which mm-hmm. I mentioned earlier, then, you know, you're in a good position. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think we'll leave it at that. I think that's a great way to end. So, <laughs> with that being said, um, Kurt, one more time, if people want to find you, where do they go on the interweb? Uh, they can they can just uh, look at my Facebook, I guess, uh, Kate, <laughs> K-U-R-T-S-C-H-A-T-Z-L, or they can uh, go to my IG, which is a complete mess. <laughs> my IG is pigeon, as in the bird, under slash toad. T-O-E-D under slash orange is in the fruit under slash peel P-E-E-L and that's my IG and that's that's all I've got my Twitter is all guns no one wants to listen to that <laughs> alrighty well thank you for for coming on we will definitely have you on again I mentioned um, Japanese rat snakes my favorite rat snakes uh, an episode for selfish purposes I want to have is a Japanese rat snake episode just dedicated to them and you'd be the perfect guy for that one. So yeah. Hey Zach, real yeah. quick off of that. We haven't Kurt and I haven't even posted this stuff yet, but Oh yeah, you Kurt just hatched I was out. About so, it earlier when you were trying to figure yeah. out what the hell was going on, yeah. So so anyone that has listened <laughs> so far to this, these are probably the first time that have ever been hatched in the world, but um Kurt just hatched out some patternless Amel annery animals. Um, so you'll definitely have to check I'll out check Kurt's out. Instagram and Facebook page for that. I actually didn't put them up yet. Oh, there we go. <laughs> I know. That's what I was saying. <laughs> I got I to wait till they shed. They look like dog shit until they there shed. You go. So. They look really nice after they shed, but they don't look good before they shed. Well, I'll be looking out for that picture. So, it was great to be yeah, on. Yeah, no worries. This was have fun. on again. So people... I figured I'd say something stupid, or more things stupid. Apparently, That's all good. So uh, those who want to find me, Dr. Crawdad on Instagram and Zach Lofman on Facebook. Um, and uh, as always, we are incredibly grateful to the Marillion Python Network. 
really a Python network for having us uh, and hosting Colubrid and Colubrid Radio there. Uh, Matt, where can people find you? Uh, Serpent Mitra on Facebook and Serpent Mitra USA on Instagram. Alrighty, so this has been another episode of Colubrid and Colubrid Radio. Thank you all, and have a wonderful day or night, depending on when you're listening. Later.